turn to John chapter 15, and we'll be looking at verses 12 through 15. And while you're finding that, let me tell you about some of my favorite people. None of them are alive, but they're some of my favorite people, and they're called Puritans. The term Puritans was originally a term of contempt. It was a mudslinging name of disdain, but the name stuck. And the Puritans really grew out of the English Reformation in the early 16th century and had their biggest influence from about 1550 to 1700 or so. And contrary to popular misconception, they weren't called Puritans because they somehow wanted to live a boring lifestyle free from anything fun whatsoever. They were called Puritans because they were pushing back against the Church of England, which they felt had kept too much of the ritualism and the forced elements of Roman Catholicism. In other words, they wanted the church to be purified, thus they were called Puritans. They believed that worship and life ought to be derived from the Bible and the Bible alone and not from church tradition of any kind. Interestingly, the Puritans have had a huge influence on us even today, and yet in their time they pretty much lost every public debate or confrontation they were involved in. The Puritans who stayed in England never saw the changes to the Church of England that they hoped for. Puritan pastors in the Church of England, uh, churches were expelled from their ministries. They were persecuted harshly in the Act of Uniformity of 1662. Many of the Puritans left England and eventually some came across the Atlantic to, to New England, which in and of itself was a major struggle with their little colonies barely surviving. And yet the Puritans left for us a legacy well worth re-examining. The Puritans have been wrongly characterized as these stodgy legalists who just make a bunch of rules for life, when in fact nothing could be further from the truth. They were staunch defenders of biblical salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. They defended Reformed theology. Puritan pastors were prolific writers, leaving for us the great writings of Richard Baxter, John Owen, Samuel Rutherford, Jonathan Edwards, William Perkins, Thomas Watson, John Flavel, Thomas Goodwin, and many others. In fact, in the last 40 to 50 years, 150 Puritan authors have been reprinted. And so there's a resurgence in looking at the Puritans. And they left an example for us in so many ways. And to get our minds thinking in the right direction, I want to just suggest a few of those examples that really enrich our understanding of these great believers in our history, and then we'll get into our text here. First of all, the Puritans love to exalt Christ. They love to exalt Christ. Samuel Rutherford wrote this, Put the beauty of 10,000 worlds of paradises, like the Garden of Eden in one, put all trees, all flowers, all smells, all colors, all tastes, all joys, all loveliness, all sweetness in one. Oh, what a fair and excellent thing would that be. And yet it would be less to that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ than one drop of rain to the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and foundations of 10,000 earths. That's a poetic way to say Jesus is above everything. They love to exalt Christ. The Puritans were exceedingly Trinitarian, as we sang about just a moment ago. They steeped themselves in the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Spirit in in salvation and in the sanctifying work of God in our daily lives. 
They were enamored with the relationship that the triune God has with himself and the relationship that we now can have with the triune God. The Puritans centered their lives around preaching. This was the central the central really activity of their lives was the preached word of God. It was the high point of their week. It was the high point of all Christian worship. They expected their preachers to be highly educated, to spend tremendous amounts of time of study in the scriptures. Sermons were to be expository, informational, evangelistic, convicting, applicational, and powerful. They believed in in the unction and the fervor of the preacher and the preached word. It was to be passionate. It was to be zealous. They needed their preaching to be zealous because they were going to live their lives Monday through Saturday based on the preaching they heard on Sunday. The Sunday services typically included long prayers and a two-hour sermon. That's my dream for my birthday someday. I want to get to preach a two-hour sermon. But get this, they would go to lunch and come back and hear another one. And then on Sunday evenings, the families would go home and the fathers would meet with their families and say, how will we apply this to our lives? Because to the Puritan, the preaching wasn't done until the application was made. Puritans integrated faith into all of their life. They integrated their faith into their life. For them, there was no distinction between the sacred and the secular. Everything was sacred and was to be done to the glory of God and obedience to him. In other words, their prayer life was just as important as showing up on time and being a man of integrity and vice versa. They strived to live fairly simple lives, not for simplicity's own sake, but to make certain that they had time for all that was truly important. And as part of this integrating faith into all of life, they yearned for holiness. They, learned, they, they yearned for uh, godliness in their lives. John Owen wrote, Let no man think to kill sin with few, easy, or gentle strokes. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's how Puritans thought about sin. In fact, John Owen uses an illustration, and and he uses language that's unfamiliar to us, so I'll kind of translate for him. He says, basically, if you're going to hit a snake on the head one time, you better be ready to hit it over and over again until it's dead. Otherwise, it's going to bite you. And that's how he talks about killing sin. Puritans sought a holistic spiritual experience. They engaged the intellect, intellect, the will, the heart. They learned the scriptures systematically. They desired to conform their will to God's will. They were supremely aware of their own sinfulness. So the constant meditation and application of scripture was the remedy. A five-year-old Puritan probably had more Scripture memorized than most of you do today because they were so engaged with the Bible. They desired an ardent devotion to God, which was to overflow into your thoughts, to your affections, to how you spoke, how you, how you interacted. It was a holistic spiritual experience. Puritans sought to create godly homes. The godly home was based on following carefully the precepts of the Bible concerning marriage and the family, and they pushed back against any cultural deviations. They, they would say that the culture has nothing to say to me about my family, that only the Bible speaks to me. J.I. Packer wrote of the Puritan marriage, quote, the Puritan ethic of marriage was to look not for a partner whom you do love passionately at this moment, but rather for one whom you can love steadily as your best friend for life, and then to proceed with God's help to do just that. 
They highly valued marriage. It was something that was to be pleasant and sweet. It was to be a respite for one another from the world. They believed in wholehearted romantic love and love that perseveres with one another. They sought to raise their children with steady, firm discipline, with social training, and most importantly, with family worship. The family worship time was a way to train their children in the things of the Lord until that time when that child would come to saving faith in Christ. The Puritan home was steady. It was dependable. They had a nurturing mother running the home and a stable, strong, loving father providing for the family and leading them in family worship. As a matter of fact, in Puritan communities, if, if someone was, uh, didn't have a family, they were placed by the church in a family. That there weren't, there weren't people living alone. They were always in a family. The Puritans highly valued church membership. Uh, to them, the church wasn't something they did on Sundays. The church was their community. The church was the center of their community, not just in addition to a secular social life, They had a rigorous, well-defined ecclesiology, an understanding of the church that that was solid, that was detailed. They even wanted to live in close proximity to one another for accountability and to be able to meet together frequently. Church membership was something to be cherished and valued because it meant that the shepherds of the church had examined your testimony of faith and concluded that you were a believer in Christ. And so to be a member of the church was, was a big deal. Only a church member could partake of the Lord's table because only the church member had publicly proclaimed faith in Christ. And by the way, in early colonial America, only a church member could vote. They said, if you're not going to follow Christ, we don't trust what you're going to say at the ballot. And to our point this morning, Puritans believe that Scripture sees love for God as proven by love for one another that it's impossible to say, I love God, but I don't love my brother. They believed strongly that a healthy church was filled with true believers who proved their faith to be genuine by caring for one another in tangible ways, caring for what they called the outward man. And because they valued holiness, they believed this holiness extended into their relationships. That if I say I'm going to be holy as God is holy, then that works itself out in those that I love It worked itself out in that their zeal to love God should naturally exude and and be expressed in a zeal to love one another. John Owen wrote, Love and its exercise is the principal grace and duty that is required among and expected from the saints of God, especially as they are engaged in church fellowship. For the Puritans, rightly so, because they based their lives very carefully in the Scriptures, love for one another was the logical outflow of all the other things I just listed, of exalting Christ, of the love in the Trinity, the preached Word of God, an integrated faith, a holistic spiritual experience, godly homes, a high value on church membership. All that led to love. Or to put it this way, they held firmly the conviction that the love of God for us in salvation must and certainly should give rise to love for one another. That the vertical downward love of God for us should give rise to the horizontal love for one's fellow believer in, in particular and fellow human being in general. And in fact, that flow from the vertical love of God to the horizontal love that we have one for another is exactly the flow 
that Jesus has described in John 15 as he continues addressing his disciples. Now, last week we looked at the vertical love of God through Christ, chapter 15, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. That's the vertical love. And now the natural outcome is horizontal love for one another. It has to be. John 15, verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Now, over the past weeks, we've been making the case from John chapter 15 that Christianity, to be a Christian, is costly. That Christ paid the penalty free of charge for our sin, but to follow him demands that we forsake everything. And those aren't my words. Those are Christ's words. Our theme verse to remind us of this fact has been Luke 14, 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, so far, we've seen the cost associated with following Christ in John 15, the cost of fatherly discipline, the cost of committed perseverance, the cost of fruitful prayer, the cost of unconditional obedience. And today in our text, we'd like to look at the cost of sacrificial love, the cost of sacrificial love. And I'd like to give you from our text this morning just four basic lessons about love, four four lessons for us. These are foundational pieces of information that really stress the importance and the, the critical nature of love. Out of those four, in my opinion, the broad churches as a whole, what we sometimes call evangelicalism, has figured out one of them. And the other three essentially are ignored or we are ignorant of them. So hopefully we can shore up our understanding of what, uh, how significant love actually is. The first lesson Love is a covenant requirement. Love is a covenant requirement. Jesus begins, this is my commandment, that you love one another. The word commandment can be translated warrant, injunction, charge, order, ordinance, instruction, mandate. Never in the New Testament is this Greek word translated suggestion or hope. He doesn't say, this is my hopeful suggestion that you love one another. He says, this is my commandment. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is the same Greek word used in Exodus 24, 12 to refer to the Ten Commandments. They're not suggestions. Here in John 15, verse 10, we're given the general command that our love for Christ is expressed in our obedience to Christ. But now that the general commands of verse 10, just obey everything, they're encapsulated in this central order one which has served the church well for 20 centuries now and will serve the church until Christ returns. This isn't a generalized theological love for the church. This is not you saying, yes, I agree that I love the church. This is love that has names and faces and actions and sacrifices. In fact, Mark chapter 12 records a scribe asking Jesus a question. The question was, which commandment is the most important of all? Mark 12 records his answer. The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, who is a scribe? A scribe is a teacher of the law. 
He was a student of scriptures. And this scribe is an exception in the ministry of Christ because he's actually interested in what Jesus has to say. Most of the scribes weren't. Rabbinical tradition counts 613 commands in the Torah, in the law of God. 365 of them are, are prohibitions. 248 are positive commands. And the, the rabbis just sat around differentiating these. And they came up with two major categories. There were the heavy commandments and the light commandments. The light commandments had less demand on your will and your possessions, while the heavy commandments concerned life's uncompromising essentials. Heavy commandments carry the biggest penalty and the light commandments carried less severe consequences. And so the answer to this question, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6 from the Shema, which means hear, hear, O Israel. And then he adds, by the way, and with all your mind. That's not in the Old Testament text. Jesus adds that. Now that could be taken as covering all the bases that, that soul might mean to clarify. And even if Jesus is adding to the text of Scripture, he wrote it in the first place. He gets to add more if he wants to. He is the Son of God. But the scribe asked for one great commandment. Jesus gave him two. He also quoted from Leviticus 19.18, Love your neighbor as yourself. And so the scribe, he hears this, and he's excited about Jesus' answer. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't push back. He's excited. The scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Mark twelve thirty four. Jesus saw that the scribe answered wisely and he said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He wasn't there yet, but he was close. The scribe had come, by the way, to pass judgment on Jesus. Jesus passed judgment on him. What was left for the scribe to do? Well, there's just one more step. He was to acknowledge his own sinfulness, his own need to repent, to worship Jesus Christ as the Savior and the Messiah, to receive salvation by grace through faith alone and through the Holy Spirit, to be enabled to fulfill those commands that you can't truly love one another unless you are a believer now, you who are astute Bible students, you might be saying, wait a minute, those commands are the old covenant. Those are the, that's the law of Moses. That doesn't count. Correct. But Jesus has now in John 15 included them in the new covenant. So, it's a new covenant command. It's imperative to remember that being a Christian, and we don't talk about this much in the church, it is a covenant relationship. It is a covenant relationship. If you hear a gospel presentation that says Jesus just wants to be your friend, that is not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus has offered to enter into covenant with you. He's the Savior. We are the saved. And therefore, he has rights over us. And as our Savior who entered into covenant with us to give us eternal life in Christ, he has given us covenant requirements as those already under his grace and under his mercy. This is so important for us to grasp because it takes away all of our usual excuses for not loving. Here's a list of excuses. He's difficult. I don't like him. His theology is different than mine. He offended me. She talks too much. She's bossy. She's a gossip. She said something once 10 years ago. I've decided to never forget. Uh, you make up your own excuses because you have them. But in covenant relationship. 
we don't love one another because it's convenient. We don't love one another because it makes us feel good or because of anything about me. We love one another because our Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross to save us from our sins. He has entered into covenant with us and as part of that covenant requirement now, he is required that we love one another. He didn't ask our permission. He didn't say, when you feel like it, we are to love one another. This is one of the great things about the idea of church membership, by the way, this biblical idea of church membership. This is an act of love. You're joining with a local body to not just be a receiver, but a giver as well. First basic lesson, love is a covenant requirement. The second basic lesson from our text, love has a perfect model. Love has a perfect model. Jesus continues, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And how has Jesus loved us? Now, the disciples wouldn't fully grasp this yet, but after the cross, they will. Verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And so we are to love as Jesus does. This is the one of the four lessons that I think that the church as a whole, the broader church at large, is they're most familiar with. But it almost sounds cliche, doesn't it? To ask the classic question, what would Jesus do? Why does it sound cliche? I'm going to give you a reason in a moment. But first we need to get precise about his statement in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends. We need to get precise, and to help us do that, keep your finger there and turn over with me to Romans chapter 5 just for a moment. Romans chapter 5, what is the example, what is the standard of love that Jesus sets? He will lay down his life for his friends. Oh, but friends is a loaded word. We have to define friends first. Friends is a common translation. It just means ones who are loved. Ones who are loved. So who are Jesus' friends? Let's give a, let's give a precise definition. Romans 5, look with me at verses 6, 7, and 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Let's focus on verse 7 for a moment. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Now, on the surface, it seems like the righteous person and the good person are synonymous. They were kind of talking about the same thing. But this is clearly a comparison. This is a contrast. And there's quite a debate about the meaning of these, but I think the best road to go down is simply that the righteous person, and not not meaning righteous in the sense of righteous standing before God, but the righteous person is just generally someone who is deserving. That they, just purely from a human standpoint, deserve to be saved. This is an individual person, someone you may or may not know. Uh, This is the fireman giving his life for a potential victim. This is a combat buddy throwing himself into the line of fire for a, a fellow soldier. Verse 7 says that it happens, but that's rare. But the contrast, more likely, it's more likely that one will dare to die for a good person. Who is a good person in this context? Again, not a theologically good person, but this is just somebody with whom you have a relationship, a brother, a wife, a child. 
So what's the point of this contrast with Christ? The Apostle Paul is basically saying it's highly unlikely that someone will die for another, even someone who is, who is deserving to be rescued. It's maybe a little more likely that someone will die for a particularly special person where there's a, a relationship, a brother, a wife, a child. That's common knowledge. But here's his comparison. The death of Christ is in a, in a completely different category. He laid down his life for the ungodly, for the totally undeserving, that he might save them. The death of Christ is in a completely different category. There's no comparison. He died, verse 6, for the spiritually weak, verse 6, for the ungodly, verse 8, for those who were still sinners. But there's one more word to describe those for whom Christ died. Verse 10 says that Christ died for us while we were the enemies of God. So what is the real definition of friends? The real definition of friends is enemies that God decided to love. That's a friend. Jesus laid down his life for his enemies in order to make them his friends. You did not make a deal with Jesus. He covenanted to make you into his friend even while you were his enemy. And this is our standard. Does this sound familiar from the lips of Jesus himself from Matthew 5? You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, what? Love your what? Enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. What a standard. What a model. Remember, Jesus didn't die on the cross for you because you were at the cross begging him to do so. You were off in the world sinning and being your own heinous sinner. You hated God. You didn't want anything to do with God. And he died for you while you were doing those things. In fact, he died for you before you did any of them. Now, why has loving like Jesus loves become so cliche? Why has what would Jesus do become so cliche? I think it's, become, it's because it's become a moral code that even unbelievers or false believers in the church may try to follow in order to earn God's favor. It's impossible to earn God's favor instead of this love being the result of genuine salvation. That's why it's become cliche. And so we have to be very clear that our love for one another is an outflow of what Christ has already done. And that brings us to our third lesson. Love is evidence of salvation. Love is evidence of salvation. You can turn back to John 15. Love is evidence of salvation. Verse 14 of John 15. You are my friends. Here's the big word. If you do what I command you. Let me give you three proofs that love is evidence of salvation of a truly regenerate heart. And we'll call these intuition, repetition, and verification. Intuition, Repetition, verification. Love is the evidence of salvation. First proof. We'll call it intuition. In Acts chapter 2, the church of Jesus Christ is born. New believers are filled and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And these were all Jews. Some of them were rich. Some of them were poor. Some lived there in Jerusalem. Some were just visiting for Pentecost and happened to hear the gospel message. Before they ever attended a single Bible study, before they ever heard a single sermon on love from a mediocre preacher in Bakersfield, California, before they ever had a chance to pray about it, before they ever had a chance to read a book about love, 
What happened instantly and intuitively because of the Spirit of God in them? Acts 4.32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. They immediately began to look to one another's needs, to the outward man, as the Puritans would say. They literally had not heard one single sermon on loving one another, and they just started doing it. It was intuitive. Here's a second proof. We'll call this proof repetition. Repetition. If in John 15, Jesus is using a hammer to drive this point home, then the apostle John uses a pile driver, that that giant machine-driven hammer that drives pillars into the ground to support buildings. Here's John's pile driver explanation in 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. He's like taking a sledgehammer to a little nail and just driving that thing in. By the way, did you catch this? Perfect love casts out fear what does that mean it means that if you have in your heart a yearning and a longing for the people of god if you're moved to great care and concern for the believers around you if your soul longs for the company of the saved then have no fear your love has proven your faith real there's a third proof we'll call this one verification Jesus said that the true believer loves as he does, laying down his life for his friends. And again, the Apostle John verifies this five decades later, 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now John uses almost exactly the same words of, as Jesus five decades later. Four lessons about love. Love is a covenant requirement. Love has a perfect model. Love is evidence of salvation. One more. Love has a kingdom setting. Love has a kingdom setting. Verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Now, the New Testament clearly states that the Christian is the slave of Christ, the servant of Christ. Paul calls himself a slave of Christ multiple times. It's the same word translated servant here. 
And you recall that in the Bible, the idea of a slave has a much broader use than our own history tells us. It can include the terrible, cruel version of slavery, which is denounced by God, by the way, in Exodus 21. But it also includes the idea of being under a loving and kind and generous master. But even a master who's kind and loving and generous, he didn't call his servant in and say, hey, I just wanted to let you know what I'm thinking about our plans for our house. And I wanted to let you know and, you know, what's happening in our marriage here. And wanted to tell you that, you know, my second kid, he's the worst one. And I need you to pray for him. And, and my, my, my oldest kid, he's kind of an overachiever. And I need you to pray for him. It, those conversations didn't happen between master and servant. Yes, there might be love and kindness and generosity. But the personal things were not the servant's domain. But now Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants. And in the overall context of the New Testament, we can translate that merely servants. Now Jesus calls the disciples, and by extension us, his friends. And what's the basis for this friendship? That Jesus is making known to them all that the Father has made known to him. All the inside information. What intimate and glorious knowledge Jesus is giving them. In fact, to illustrate this, I could show you what he's given them in the last couple of hours in his speaking with him. This same evening, the night that he would be arrested, he gave them knowledge of heaven. John 14, verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? He gave them knowledge of salvation. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He gave them knowledge of the doctrine of the Trinity. He said in verse 9 of chapter 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. He gave them knowledge of their own future. John 14, verse 12, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do. He gave them knowledge of the coming Spirit of God. Just a couple of verses later, I will ask the Father. He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. That's the Trinity also, by the way. He just said, you know Him because you've been with me. You know the Spirit of God because you know the Son of God. He gave them knowledge of Christ's return. Verse 18 of John 14, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. He gave them knowledge of a coming New Testament. John 14, 26, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This isn't what you tell a mere servant. He gave them knowledge of heaven, salvation, the Trinity, their future, the Spirit of God, Christ's return, a coming revelation from God. That's intimate knowledge. That's what you tell a friend, one on whom Christ has placed his love. Now, what does this have to do with loving? Jesus Christ has revealed his kingdom plan. He's revealed it to them, and by extension, he's revealed it to us because we have it right here in the Bible. And loving one another is given as a command in the overall context of this overarching kingdom plan. And here's how it works, and you have to listen to get this connection. During the church age, the Holy Spirit is drawing men, drawing women, drawing children to himself, 
to become kingdom citizens in salvation, people to inhabit the future kingdom of God, to be worshipers of Christ for all time and to enjoy God forever. And what is one of the means by which the Holy Spirit will draw men to become Christ, in Christ, and to become kingdom citizens? What is one of the means? John thirteen thirty five. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That is the means by which God is building the kingdom. This is why ice cube churches that don't like people aren't helpful in the kingdom plan. It is the church of Jesus Christ loving one another with the standard of Jesus Christ laying down your very life for another that says to the unbeliever, I want a part of that. I want to know what kind of God makes people like you. Your love for one another is not just about be loving because Jesus said so. It is about love one another because this is how God will grow his kingdom roster. Now I'm confident in the Holy Spirit that even now he's applying this message to your individual hearts. He knows you much better than I do. He knows what you need better than I do. But let me just make some broad applications that might find their mark for some of you. If you've been dodging the Lord right now, this last shot's going to get you, so you may as well just sit still. Men. Men, God puts you on earth to give security, safety, and affection to those around you, to be a light of love and care to those around you, not to just be busy all the time. You're here to be a light. You're here to be a protector. You're here to be a caregiver. Ladies, love those around you by saying and thinking the best of them, honestly cherishing them in your heart, and not just those who are nicest to you, but cherish them for real. Married men, cherish your wives and children. Show it. Tell them. Serve them. Make time for them. Don't be stoic. Don't, don't be unavailable. Don't be detached. Be all there. Married women, don't waste your life wishing your husband was different. Love him now. Serve him now. Make his life better now, just as you're called to do. Younger children, do we have some small kids in here? I know most of them are gone, but we have some kids, and you're allowed to make your kids listen to this recording God has given you two sets of people to love on this earth, your parents and your brothers and sisters. Love your parents by obeying them and love your brothers and sisters by playing with them, by talking with them, by being their friend. And if you're a young Christian, tell your brothers and sisters that you love Jesus. Be the one to witness the gospel to them. Youth, love by being respectful, by being a servant, Don't be surly and moody all the time to bring attention to yourself. When you turn 15 or 16, that doesn't mean that the whole world now revolves around you. It doesn't. Don't go down the road of loving and respecting your parents less. Love them more. Respect them more. Listen to them more. Young adults, you're still learning to let people be who they are and to cherish them as individuals even though they're different than you. You're still finding your own way, so anyone not like you might make you nervous, might make you insecure. Learn to love people where they are, not being impatient because they're not just like you. Less young adults, those of you in that stage of life where you're busy, you're caring for the generation before you and the generation after you at the same time. You're in a super busy stage of life. 
use your calendar and your priorities to make sure you have time for other people and that your life has not been reduced to just checking things off of a to-do list all the time. People take time. You seasoned saints, and I openly have said that you're my favorite ones. You seasoned saints, when you're on your final lap in this life, I know you have to spend a lot of time and energy just making it through the day. I understand that. But beware of becoming too focused on yourself. And if I could suggest this, if the prayers of the church were a plane, the prayers of our seasoned saints are the jet engines that drive that plane. Pray more for others than yourself because our older saints, guess what? When you go to heaven, all your prayers will be answered already anyway. And could I speak to those I'll call the hesitant? Those of you who are semi-involved here at Grace, but you're not all in, take the risk. Be all in so you can love others in different contexts. Be part of making Grace a church that exudes the love of Christ. Go to today's ministry fair. Sign up for a ministry. Get into a small group. Be all in. Choose to be family, warts and sins and all. We'll take you anyway. We're, we're all sinners. Be part. Be part of the family. And if I could speak to church leaders at every level, Sunday school teachers all the way up to the elders, Jesus was the gentle shepherd of whom Matthew 12 said, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Remember that people are more important than the tasks of ministry. And to all of you church members, Pray for and be a help to your leaders. We need you and we cherish your love just as much as you do. Live your life in the church. Be like Tabitha in the book of Acts who was well known to her whole church not because she was popular or loud or controlling or anything but because she served others in tangible ways. Be so loving that were the Apostle Peter alive and you died, he would come back and resurrect you because the church needs you so much. Don't be the one that the Apostle Peter would come and say, eh, not really making a difference here, is she? Be the one that makes a difference by serving and not caring who gets the credit. I know that the arrows of the Holy Spirit have entered into your hearts and I trust that the Lord will drive those truths home to you. The great Puritan preacher John Owen preached a sermon called Gospel Charity. His text was Colossians 3.14, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And he made a stunning observation. He said this, You may likewise observe that this love is the means of communion between all the members of the body of Christ, as faith is the instrument of their communion with their head, Jesus Christ, and here's his observation. And therefore, our apostle doth seven or eight times in his epistles join faith and love together as the entire means of the communion and the fruitfulness of the body of Christ. May the Lord drive these truths deeply into the core of your soul such that you are never the same. Our Father, we come to you right now thanking you for the truths of Scripture, thanking you for the fact that we now can transition to really the highest point of Christian worship, and that is to remember the body and blood of Christ. And so, Lord, we, we pray for your favor and your help. We pray, Lord, to be a church that is loving, a church that is 
all in to love one another as a reflection of Christ's love for us, as proof of Christ's love for us. And so, Lord, now as we come to the Lord's table to remember our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who first loved us, who died on the cross while we were yet enemies, I pray that you would enter into this time, Lord, with a, with a special uniqueness that is dear and special to our hearts so that we might, with reverence and with awe and remembrance, remember Christ, who is the source of our love. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.